0: Oh, yeah, we're fine. (laughs) Um, All right, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Joel chapter 2. If you do not have your Bible, then it will be behind me on the screen, hopefully. All right. (laughs) It should be. It'll be fine. I trust you. Um, So Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming and it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, like like, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations." Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? May God bless the reading of His word. Um. So today, we're you wanna? How are you doing, Mike? I'm um, right ahead of you. <laughs> Oh, good. Okay, you're good. Good. Okay, keep it right there. Um, so today we're going to we're going to be talking a little bit about the Day of the Lord, and um, with that, Amos is drawing two kind of distinct or not Amos, Joel. Joel, thanks. He thinking he, he thinks he has power today. <laughs> I guess I gave it to him. Anyway, um, actually, never mind. Theological concept going in my head. Joel. Anyway, Joel, so he is bringing together two different themes, and that's the first is locusts, which we saw in the first chapter, but then also this human army. And we're going to see how they kind of collide together in this crazy picture of the day of the Lord. So let's go ahead and we'll see how this all works out. Verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. So we now begin chapter 2 of Joel with a call for a trumpet to be blown in Zion. Uh, Zion, as we may know, or as many know, represents Jerusalem. And this is further established by the alarm being established on my holy mountain, which represents the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Being a prophet, Joel is the conduit for the word of the Lord. Hence, it is God himself calling the people to blow the trumpet, which makes sense when we read, my holy mountain. It is not Joel's mountain, it is not the people's mountain, but it is God's holy mountain. But the question is, Why should this trumpet be sounded? Why this alarm? The only reason is for a coming tragedy which is going to befall. And this is exactly the case as all the inhabitants of the land are called to tremble. What are they to tremble at? And that is the day of the Lord which is coming. Most would imagine that this day of the Lord would be a good day filled with light. Here we find, however, that this day will not be a day of light, nor a day of joy, but instead darkness and gloom. Instead, a day of clouds, thick darkness. Indeed, a great and mighty people will come upon the land. Their might and their strength will be so great that it would not have been seen before the land, before this time. It's how great and awesome this people is. And again, not after them. In all the years and in all the generations. Thus the Lord will use another nation, use another people to come against his own people in Israel and in Judah. And it is this and more that the people should heed the warnings of the prophet. So what's that day going to be like? Verses 3-6. through Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearances is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. The language that Joel uses changes to discuss exactly what will befall when this great enemy comes against the land. It will be as a great fire that comes upon it. It does not necessarily mean a literal fire, as it seems more metaphorical to describe the great destruction which is going to take place. In fact, the land before is like the Garden of Eden. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. However, afterwards, it's a desolate wilderness. Such a devastation from, from an enemy would be catastrophic, as nothing would be able to escape such a wrath. The description of horses is reminiscent of the locust plague. As elsewhere during that time period, horses were a way of describing locusts. We see this in Egypt um, and a few other places during the time period that Joel was written. In fact, much of this can go hand in hand, as we said earlier, with the idea of a locust plague. Though it seems very likely Joel is using the concept of locusts that he previously saw as a way to describe the enemy at hand, or the enemy which is to come. Thus, throughout this, we can imagine Joel seeking a locust plague and then relating it to the day of the Lord, which is now to come. For them to be like horses then, either the locusts or the army, is to represent their swiftness. One would not want to face a large army, let alone an army which is fierce, swift, and strong. Verse 5 discusses that the people witness with the coming enemy. They will be able to hear the great army like rumbling of chariots, able to uh, hear it at a distance. Um, The enemy, being described in a similar fashion to a locust plague, is able to be seen coming toward the city. It should not surprise anyone what would happen when the people behold this great army before them. Indeed, the people, they're in anguish. And their faces, they're pale. They know that they cannot withstand such an enemy as this. And because of this, they recognize their plight. Even their doom. When they experience the great army which is before them. Now verses 7-9. through nine, Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. At this point, we see how the army and the locust analogies further comes together. They are like warriors. In verse 7, and yet they are like a human army in which they move in the way that they are. Thus, it further shows us the continued combination of a human army mixed with a locust plague. In this sense, then, they do charge, and like an enemy army, they scale the wall. They are seeking to break into the city. They are not only strong and swift, but they are also organized. Such an organization of such a force is great and will cause nothing but destruction for the people. They do not swerve, but continue on in their way just as they are commanded to do. And because of their strength, their speed, and their organization, weapons have little effect against them. The arrows, they rain down upon them, but it does not halt their progress. The spears lifted, but still they continue on. Like a great fire unable to be extinguished, so the army continues forward without being slowed. They break into the city itself, and in doing so, they take the walls, they take the housetops, and even the houses themselves. From a locust perspective, it is reminiscent of the locust plague in Egypt during the Exodus, when the locusts were invading the houses. At the same time, from a military, from a human army perspective, it represents the inability of the defenders to be able to withstand the onslaught. The enemy is victorious, rushing into the city, causing destruction and devastation in their wake. Now verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Verse 10 begins to describe something which the previous verses have not truly discussed. Yes, we can imagine how a locust swarm or an enemy could be depicted in the previous verses. And even in this verse, which begins with the idea of the earth quaking before the enemy. However, this is as far as the purely normal description of an enemy army goes, as at this point it goes one further. It describes how the heavens tremble. Even the sun and moon are darkened. Scholars note that sun and light often represent blessing, within the law now however they're taken away they no longer receive such light because of the invading force not only this but the stars withdraw their shining indeed the greatness of the foe is unbearable before the people with it we are left wondering how can such an enemy army or even locust be so great We can imagine perhaps locusts covering the sky, but even this kind of language is so strong to describe what is happening. So how can this all be? Verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Finally, we come to what we first learned at the beginning of the chapter. This is not an ordinary army Instead, this is the Lord's army. He has brought it forward and he will use it to destroy. He utters his voice before it, thus leading it further along as it causes its destruction. It is his army, which is so great. It is he who executes his word in power, which is a word against the people. Ultimately, all of this has been a declaration of the day of the Lord. This is not just an enemy army coming upon the people of God, but it is God himself who has raised this army against his people. It is not as though the army has formed simply to cause destruction and chaos. Instead, it is the will of God that this should occur. Against the might of the Lord, all that is left to ask... For the prophet is, who can endure it? Such a question is rhetorical when we consider the strength, the swiftness, and the organization of the great host. For it is brought forth by God himself on his day. Thus the question is not who can withstand the army, but who can withstand the judgment of God. And the answer is, none. None. The main point of these verses are to describe the devastation which occurs on the day of the Lord. God, via Joel, continues to use a locust swarm to describe just how great the enemy army will be against the people. The end conclusion, we see the might of the God is so great that they are unable to withstand it. In fact, Joel just even asks, who can endure it? The answer is, only those who are of God can withstand the wrath of God. Nothing else, then, apart from God can withstand his judgment. Alrighty, application points. The day of the Lord. Um, This chapter, as we see, is mainly focused on the day of the Lord. And because of this, it seems prudent to discuss it in full. So instead of a few short points, um, we will have one large point which focuses on different aspects of the day of the Lord. Now the first thing we want to consider is that the day of the Lord was, for the people of God, meant to be a glorious day. It was to be a day when God himself would dispose of all the enemies of the people of God. They would have a victory unlike any other victory. Because the victory over the enemies would not be won by anything less than the Lord himself. As it says in verse 11 of the verses we looked at today, Who can endure it? The answer, of course, no one apart from those who are of God. So this is one sense of the day of the Lord. It is a day when God not only intercedes, but just as importantly, he wins. We look forward to a day of the Lord when Christ himself will defeat the last enemy, which is death. We know that the day is coming when Christ will win. When he intercedes on our behalf against death and death is undone in full. As people of God, then, we have great hope for the coming day of the Lord, which we so eagerly await. We have great hope knowing Our hope is not in vain. That what the Lord has promised, He will certainly accomplish in His might and in His power. If we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear of that day. For all those who are in Christ do not experience judgment, but experience love. And as we learn in 1 John, for those who are in Christ, there is no judgment but love. This, then, is the first sense that we can understand about uh, this concept of the day of the Lord, which is still to come. It will be glorious for those who are in Christ. It will be the end of death and the destruction of darkness once and for all. We know that the day will come, and as a people in Christ, we expect it. The second sense, though, of the day of the Lord is that while there is hope within it, that the enemies of God are finally destroyed, there is also devastation which occurs. We notice that the day of the Lord is represented here in Joel, um, and as we saw actually in Amos as well. We notice the kind of phrases used. It is a day of darkness. The light is chased away. There are earthquakes. A great army comes. Who can endure it? It is in this we find our situation before we are in Christ. Before we are in Christ, we were enemies which were surrounded. We were not the ones who did the surrounding. Instead, the armies of God were marching against us. The judgment which was to befall, the judgment which none could endure, which would cause all of us to faint, was approaching. In this sense, all humanity can be seen as those in Jerusalem being surrounded. They were the ones who experienced the judgment of God and there will be no less of us because like the people of Israel and Judah of old, all have sinned and apart from Christ there is no redemption to be found. Again, this is the state of all people apart from the grace of God through Christ and the wrath and the judgment of God is great, it is fierce and it is mighty. What are we to do for those who are surrounded? For in this time we live amongst them. We may not be citizens of the city of destruction, as Bunyan calls it in Pilgrim's Progress, but we are certainly inhabitants while we have breath and before the return of Jesus Christ. Thus we have a responsibility, while here, to proclaim the good news of the gospel faithfully, trusting in the power of God to change the hearts and the minds of those who hear the gospel, which will turn them from their destruction and death and into peace and life as it has done with us. But we know this already. We know that God's judgment is coming. We know it is a day of darkness rather than light. And we know that those who are not in Christ will face the devastation which their sin has brought upon their heads. So what is a final aspect of the day of the Lord? What is the final thought which comes when we consider the day of the Lord in Joel especially? The final thought comes from the reality that the people all thought that the day of the Lord would be a good day for them. They all believed that their enemies would be overcome. The enemies of God would be scattered and destroyed. What, however, did we find in Joel? Who were the enemies in the chapter? Who were the evil ones? Who were the good? In this chapter, we find that God is the good, and the evil ones are the people who thought that God was on their side. This. Oh, this. This is something which should give us pause. For is it not possible that we are in the same position as they? Is it not possible that we are the ones who are going to be surrounded on that day, not in security or safety, but found to be enemies of God? Is it possible that we too believe that we will find salvation, but really will only find destruction on that day? Indeed, the great thing which many a Christian must consider in their lives Am I truly saved from the destruction to come? Unfortunately, there are many individuals who do not examine themselves very closely. There are many who are deceived into thinking that they are safe in their lives, but will find that they were never really safe at all. There are many who even claim Christ as Lord who will face the judgment of God. It is to such individuals that the description of the day of the Lord in Joel should give warning to It is to teach us who claim Christ that the warning bells are still being heard. Why? Because knowledge of God is not enough, nor is proclamation of God enough to save on that day. Now many of you will be thinking, but pastor, aren't we to rejoice over the coming of the day of the Lord? Right now, I am not feeling as though I should rejoice or even look forward to it. Indeed, that is why I save this as the final point of discussion. For you see, we are to rejoice over the coming of the Lord. Likewise, we have a responsibility to warn others of the day of the Lord. However, that does not mean that we should become lax ourselves. We are not to cease our strivings, nor are we to cease from examining ourselves to make sure that we are right with God, that we are still in the faith. It will not do for us to tell ourselves that we are safe. It is God who tells us that. And he tells us when we do examine our lives, when we seek out his will for us, which is to live in repentance and faith. This is the ultimate conclusion of the day of the Lord for us each personally. To check ourselves against the scriptures. To test ourselves to make sure that we are in Christ. To seek out our sin in our lives, and seek to eradicate it. Not with our own strength, but the strength of Christ in us. If we are in Christ, and there is nothing to fear of the day of the Lord. But to be in Christ means something more than a proclamation. It means a life changed by His Holy Spirit. It means believing what the Scriptures teach. It means loving God with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength, and loving one another as well. In this way, we can have all of our doubts erased. In this way, we will not be ones who are unwarned, but instead, we will be the ones like Joel who warn others. We become like Joel who proclaims to the people the judgment which is to come. We are called to be this in the world to show the transformation of the gospel, to ring the warning bell loudly through our different means, showing how the gospel destroys the works of the devil and darkness, so that we can glorify God in this life in all ways, from the way we handle our businesses, to our relationships, to all the above. So when we hear about the day of the Lord, and we reflect on how the people of Judah and the people of Israel faced that day, and how every nation has faced their own day of the Lord, and how there will come one final day of the Lord, we continue ever forward in the gospel of grace, standing firm on the gospel, knowing it will save us on that day. The day of the Lord will be a great day, a day of might, but also a day of darkness. Let us anxiously await for that day, but let us also not forget to examine ourselves. Thus, we fall into the trap of thinking we are safe when, in truth, we are in great danger. And that, of course, leads to the gospel. Um, he's getting there. Was a warning message that came up on the computer. Oh, it's okay. Alert, I was lost. <laughs> You're good, Mike. Times. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of this, we're going to give Mike a hand. Um, (laughs) The gospel, thank you Mike Good (laughs) We love you Mike But no, the gospel Um, This is a point we come across every week It's a point that is the final point That we could come to in any sermon that we do Because the gospel Connects everything together The gospel is what makes it So that the Old Testament and the New Testament Are joined The gospel is what makes um, all of our lives make sense, really. It makes sense with the gospel and how we consider the destruction of the day of the Lord, which is to come. But also how that day of the Lord can fill people with hope rather than fear. And so with the gospel, though, when we consider the worldview, and we consider how it affects everything in our lives, we consider it from the beginning, because that's where God began. Because without God, there is no beginning. And that starts with the origin story. And how the gospel begins with our origins, that it is God himself, not some random chance, not just um, time plus matter plus chance, but God, a design. He's the great designer. And that's how our origins begin. The question of where did all this begin? How did this all begin? It all begins with Genesis 1 where we learn in the beginning God. And so because of that, God created all this universe for his glory. He created all of the things that we see. We go out into the nighttime sky and we look up at the stars and the galaxies and the heavens and they all just rain down. And sing to us the glory of God. And they sing holy, holy, holy in their own right. And then we consider the fact our own bodies and how we are made. How each of us is able to reason. Able to love. Able to, um, able to communicate. Able to have dreams. Able to be different. Have personality. When you really think about it, where would that come from? Where do we get this? Well, it comes from God. Because God himself is all of these things. He has all these attributes and we are created in his image. And it's because of this that when we consider humanity, that we have sanctity, dignity and worth. The problem is, we have a problem. Obviously, when General Mao kills 70 million people, there's something wrong with the human race. When Hitler decides to kill 9 million people, there's something wrong with the human race. Or Joseph Stalin has 5 million people killed. There's a problem with the human race. When the Hutus and the Tutsis in Haiti, not Haiti, um, in Rwanda, when they decide to have their civil war and kill each other with machetes and millions die, there's something wrong with the human race when we see sin and darkness all over the place, when we see people who will willingly blow up children for the sake of false beliefs, we have a problem. And so we see the problem. We see the problem and we understand it in the sense of the fall, that humanity is flawed on the inside, that we have fallen into sin. Um, And that is the problem. Because once... We have sinned. We've broken the relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world. And because of that, we continue to sin, and we continue to sin, and we continue to sin. And you know what? That sin, it builds up, and it builds up, and it builds up, so that it's like a big stack of documents against us on the day of judgment. And so when the persecutor comes out, and he says, look at this stack of sin against you. And you have in your corner nothing. Because everything that you've touched is tainted by sin. We have a problem. And for all of the human aspects, for all of the destruction which comes from um, these terrible monsters in our human race, the simple truth is, is that we are also monsters ourselves in sin. And we're deserving of judgment. And that's what happened to the world. Sin. So the question is what can we do about it? Well, we're already standing before God who's going to judge us, so we can't do anything. And that's where we as Christians have an answer that no other religion has. We have Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ looks at that pile, he pushes it off the table. And he takes his own pile, which is infinite in measure of glory, of righteousness, of justice, of love, of mercy. And he puts it into yours. And all that debt, and all that pain that you've caused, and all that sin, and all that injustice, and all that unrighteousness, and all that darkness, and all that stain, wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. No other religion has that. No other religion has God coming down and saving you from your sin by himself. And that's what God has done. And so what you once were and what I am or once was, as being a monster of sin, I am no longer a monster of sin, but I am now a child of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so are you. How wonderful that news. And how in need is our society of that news. Because it's God who brings salvation. He fixes the world. And all that he requires of us is something so simple. Faith and repentance. Faith in Jesus Christ that he is sufficient for our salvation. That it's not a matter of you going out and doing so much and then maybe you'll get to heaven the way that Islam says. No. Christianity says Christ did it all. And guess what? It's through him that I am saved. How wonderful that message. And then repentance That we can be changed. Did you know that psychologists and sociologists will tell you that you can't change? You are stuck. You are a mechanism. You are a machine. And that is all. You are going to do whatever society told you. You're going to do whatever is implanted in your mind. And that's it. Because that's all you are. And then in Christ, no, you're a person. In Christ... You can be changed. And in Christ, you can repent. That means turn away from your sin and turn toward God and live in righteousness. And you can live in love and you can live in holiness. How wonderful this message. The question is, what happens in the future? Well, we saw today the day of the Lord. And we saw how there's really... Well, for them right now, there's only one option, which is destruction. And that's the case for those who don't repent and those who do not have faith in Christ. There's nothing other than that stack of dirty deeds that they have before God if they do not turn in repentance and faith. There is nothing other than their sin on that day, the day of the Lord. And because of that, they will be condemned, they will be judged, And that judgment and that wrath will fall on their heads. But there's hope. There's hope for each of us because of what Christ has done. And for those who are in Christ, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, for those who seek repentance, and even though they stumble through it, you can tell that it's there. For such a people as this, there's hope. Because through Christ we will see death conquered. We will see the day of the Lord, but instead of mourning it, we will rejoice in it because justice is served. And instead of having tears of sorrow, we will have tears of joy. And we will forevermore know the love of our God in peace in righteousness and justice and mercy. As we continue on through Joel, we're going to continue on to see about the day of the Lord, but we're going to also find hope. Um, And so I know that today, for example, when we talk about the day of the Lord and we talk about darkness and it's hard to hear in our ears because guess what? Um, I think a lot of us forget that God is mighty and that God has to deal with justice and he has to deal with righteousness. Um, It's hard for us sometimes, but it's necessary And so as we continue forward, let's not forget that this is the same God of the Old Testament who also brought Christ and promised Christ and delivered Christ as he promised. And that in the future, that promise is secure. So let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your kindness. We thank you for the coming day of the Lord, which... In some part of us may make us ache and tremble. But in another part, we recognize and we rejoice that the Lord, you, Lord, you're going to fix it all. You are going to transform all of this and you're going to bring glory to yourself. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom and we ask for discernment and we ask you to continue leading us forward in your grace knowing that you will lead us in that day, and knowing that you will save us in that day, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so, Lord, we ask for you to keep on reminding us of Christ, and that we would remember the gospel of Jesus even when we read through the judgment times, knowing that the judgment which was placed on our hearts, on our heads, was taken by your Son, Jesus Christ, if we have faith in him, and we repent of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. And Lord, we thank you for all that you will do. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. At this time, we will sing Rock of Ages. And I'm going to help Mike get it up real quick. (laughs)